We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey guys, so if you are signed up for EMS Pulse, my daily email newsletter, then you know I've been working on a new infograph for asset protection. Well, today's guest is the gentleman who helped me create it. He is an asset protection lawyer with over 30 years experience, and we'll see from today's episode why he is considered one of the best in his field. The infograph is called 15 Global Strategies to Protect Your Wealth, and it is packed with valuable information on how you can use the offshore markets to protect yourself and safeguard your financial future, no matter if you are just starting out or making millions of dollars a year. To download the infograph, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. All right, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is an internationally recognized lawyer, visionary, and strategic thinker. He has been featured in countless business publications across the world and quoted in U.S. News and World Report, as well as Forbes magazine. He is the founder and managing partner of Nagel & Associates, LLC, which specializes in international law, estate planning, global commercial transactions, and asset protection and has been the ambassador to Austria and other countries in Europe. Please welcome to the show, Joel Nagel. Joel, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Mikhail. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. We've, uh, we've had a chance to have dinner and chit-chat, and um, I have so many questions here I want to ask you. Well, I'll do my best to answer them. Thanks for having me. Wonderful. So today, if it's all right with you, I was really hoping we could talk about asset protection because this is something that really interests me and I'm really excited to learn from you. Maybe you can take a couple minutes and tell me about your backstory. Like, how did you get into be an asset protection lawyer? Well, um, thanks for asking that. It's a, uh, I guess that issue goes back almost as many years as, as I've been alive. I'm, I'm 53 years old and uh, as a very young child, really, um, my father passed away. It was in a tragic accident, and I grew up in a, in a, in a middle class family with a young mother and three siblings. And, uh, I, I saw firsthand my, my mother routinely being taken advantage of by lawyers and bankers and car dealers. And it seemed, you know, there was never an end to people that were constantly taking advantage of her. And, you know, it, it, it sort of, created in me a very uh, fierce idea of, about what's right and wrong. And, you know, as I became a lawyer many years later, um, you know, most people wanted to go into the plaintiff side of things because that's where really all the money is, right? You get all these contingency fee lawyers that are making millions and millions of dollars. Uh, in a lot of cases, what they're really doing is they're just, they're just green mailing or blackmailing uh you know, defendants or insurance companies, um, people that, you know, they don't even really have a solid uh, claim against. But, you know, there's a certain nuisance value in in settling lawsuits. And, um, you know, if they crank out enough lawsuits every day, you, you actually have 
law firm factories uh, where young lawyers are given a quota of sending out so many demand letters and filing so many lawsuits every day. So imagine, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of lawyers across the country doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it has a, uh, an impact, not only on the individual who's, who's being sued, but, you know, on society as a whole. So I, I guess I was, I've always been a contrarian and, uh, I decided early on that, uh, you know, helping people, helping protect people from, you know, the, this type of, of, of legal manipulation of our system was really, you know, something that, that I was interested in. And, you know, early on, it became clear that some of the best ways to do that were by jurisdiction shopping and, and picking jurisdictions outside the country to set up shop. And I, I know we're going to talk, you know, quite a bit today about the international side of things, but, but that's the, that's the real nutshell. I mean, it goes back to being a small child and all the way up till, you know, this morning when I got out of bed. I mean, I'm a person that really believes in, uh, you know, equity and fairness and, and, and doing the right thing. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, we have a very powerful legal system, but it's not being used the right way. And until it's, until it is being used the right way, you know, the only way to really protect yourself is to, in, in many cases, jurisdiction shop out of the system, sort of opt out. So there's so many things that I want to touch on on what you just said, but I guess we should really start off with some definitions. So, like, what is asset protection? Like, what is what is the core of what you do with your law firm? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if you want to think of of asset protection, think of it in, in a sports analogy. It's the defense. It's really about what's protecting what's yours. You know, I'm not the person to contact to say, hey, what should I invest in? How can I make money? Um, you know, what's the, I mean, I have people that help advise me in that regard. So I'm not going to tell you or your listeners how they should invest their money. But it's really the other side. It's, it's the defense. It's protecting what's, what's yours. And for some people, that can be a very simple, um, you know, it could be a very simple thing. I mean, I had a, uh, a, a, a one of my children's school teachers came up to me and said, you know, Mr. Nagel, I know you do asset protection work, and um, I'd really like if you could give me some advice. And I said, sure, I'd be happy to help you. And she went on to explain that, you know, she had this little nest egg of money she'd inherited from her parents. She was really worried about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was a little bit less than $50,000. And quite frankly, you know, you're not going to spend – a lot of time or energy or money setting up some big complicated, you know, asset protection structure to to protect fifty thousand dollars because, you know, even if you spent five or ten thousand dollars, that would be a disproportionately large amount of money given the amount you're trying to protect. But but don't forget, people even if they have five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, whatever the amount is, to that person, that is the most important money in the world, and that's the way I view asset protection. You know, we try to keep things proportionate. So if you have somebody that, in this case, teacher with less than $50,000, we talked about a couple of simple options. She decided to to um, take the money and buy some gold because gold is something that's outside the banking system. You know, once you buy it and stick it in your safety deposit box or under your mattress or wherever you want to store it, you know, it, it doesn't show up on any radars. And, you know, it can be... Um, immediately turned into liquid cash in any 
place around the world, whether it's dollars or euros or yen or pounds at, at any moment in time. So, so that served her needs. And, you know, that was a 30 minute conversation. And, you know, she didn't get a bill from me for that. It was just, you know, thank you very much for being such a great, you know, school teacher for my kids. And, um, you know, that's one end of the spectrum. Then you get, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you get people with, you know, eight, nine, ten figure, um, you know, balances of assets and they've got property and they've got limited partnerships and, and cash and stocks and bonds and, you know, it goes on and on and on. And, and then, you know, you have to be a little bit more creative about, well, how should you title these assets? How can you best protect them so that if the unthinkable happens, you know, a big lawsuit happens and you don't have enough insurance um, or your insurance, you know, in some cases, insurance companies, they're looking to protect their assets as well. And if, if they have a ability to wiggle off the hook from uh, being liable for, for a um, claim somebody has against you, you know, sometimes you find in the middle of a court proceeding, not only are you fighting, you know, a plaintiff, but you're fighting your own insurance company. And, you know, in those cases, you know, you want to have maybe a much more complex structure and strategy. It could be multiple things. It could be, you know, an asset protection trust in another jurisdiction, corporate entities, LLCs, IBCs, you know, foundations. Uh, I know some of these things you're going to want to talk about in more detail, but, you know, just to give you the overview. Yeah, the, I'm already going, I'm already like writing down notes here. I'm like, okay, what's this one? Okay, what's this one? You know, all the things that I want to go and read and research. But the point is, you know, for everyone, the 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 solution is very different. You know, sometimes people will come up to me to like a cocktail party or something. They'll say, well, Joel, what's the best, what's the best form of asset protection? What's the best asset protection? And it's really, really hard to answer that. I'm not, I'm not trying to duck their question. It's just, it's, to me, it's so personalized. You know, it would be like going to a doctor and saying, okay, what's the cure? Well, before you get into what's the cure, you have to figure out, well, what's the problem? What are the challenges? What are the potential risks? You know, the risk of the school teacher teaching my, my daughter is very different than the obstetrician in, in, you know, Los Angeles who delivers premature babies for a living, right? The, the, they have very different risk profiles. And, and therefore, the, the solutions and structures are going to be very different as well. So that really goes to the prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. You can't really give advice until you know and understand someone's individual situation. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, frequently I speak at conferences and, and, and people will come up to me and they really want a sort of back of uh, envelope type of, of answer or solution. And and, you know, and sometimes people even get angry at me when I'm not willing to do it, you know, thinking it's because, hey, you know, I, you have to hire me and pay me a lot of money before I'm going to answer your questions. But that, that's not really the case. It, it is really just, you know, hey, you want to sit down for half an hour and really explain your situation? And, and uh, you know, but I'm not able in a vacuum to just tell you do this, do that. It just doesn't, it just really doesn't work that way. No, that makes complete sense. So... I know you've touched on it a little bit, but why do we need asset protection? Like in the United States, can you talk about how litigious the, the government and the society is there? Because maybe for some of my listeners who either have not been back to the States for a very long time or maybe don't live in the States, I think that the 
the way that people end up being prosecuted is quite a bit different than other nations in the world. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the U.S. leads the way in lawsuits. I mean, uh, you know, the the statistic that I, I read, the most recent statistic is that every 17 seconds of every minute of every day, of every week, of every month of the year, you know, a new federal lawsuit will be filed. And if you add in state and local litigation, that drops to about every seven seconds. So every seven seconds, you know, just the time it takes to do this interview, another whatever thousand people will be, will be sued. And when you stop and think about it, who are the defendants? Well, generally they're people with money, right? Because you're not going to spend time and effort and energy trying to sue somebody that's indigent. And that's why the more assets you have, the better asset protection you need. Because, you know, you, you could literally not have any profession whatsoever. You could just be rich. You could just be sitting on a big pile of money, rich. Who knows how you got the money? You inherited it, you made it, you retired, whatever. And you're still a huge, you know, you've got this huge bullseye on your back because, you know, anybody that has assets in America, unfortunately, you know, it, it is, you know, they are a target. There, there, there's no doubt about it. So, you know, if you, if you ask the question, how is America different? Well, it leads the way, but, you know, plenty of other countries are, are catching up. I mean, Canada's not far behind many countries in Europe, even Japan now, the, you know, the, the, the litigation boom has, has really taken off. And, you know, part of it's driven by the, the consumer or the individual that believes that for any wrong that they suffer, somebody should have to pay for that, right? And the jury system in the U.S., definitely promotes that as well. It, I mean, if, if let's say, Mikhail, that you're a doctor and you deliver babies and you have a baby that's born um, without a brain, is that your fault as a doctor? I wouldn't imagine so. No, but, you know, I guarantee you that one in 100,000 babies are born that way. And, you know, people have gotten rich doing nothing but that. Former uh, presidential candidate John Edwards made a fortune doing nothing but suing doctors in that scenario. And the insurance companies settled with them. Why? Because they didn't want to go to court and have a jury, you know, give a, you know, a five or 10 or $20 million verdict. But, you know, it's because we have this innate feeling that, well, the, the doctors are rich, the hospitals are rich, the insurance companies are rich, you know, somebody should have to pay for this because the, you know, the baby didn't turn out perfectly. And that's just one example. I mean, we could come up with lots of other examples. You've heard of the, you know, the lady that uh, spilled her coffee, her McDonald's coffee in her lap, and, you know, a jury awarded her, you know, $250,000 because the coffee was too hot. Now, if you go to McDonald's, you you know, you get a coffee that's only lukewarm, and, you know, uh, that's the price that, that that we all pay for that. So, you know, the, the litigation boom uh, is out there. We live, because of our jury system, we have a very pro-plaintiff system. That's why for a lot of uh, Americans with wealth, moving a portion of the wealth and some of the Indus structures offshore makes sense. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's happening in other parts of the, of the world too, Australia, UK. I mean, the UK is kind of an interesting uh, in that anybody can bring a lawsuit in the UK, just like in the US, but there are some inherent differences. For example, in the UK, there's no contingency fee lawsuits. 
I mean, there's no contingency fee arrangements for the lawyers. That means, you know, you hire a lawyer, you have to pay your lawyer. You can't say, okay, if you, if you win for me, I'll give you 30 or 40% of the, of the take, which is what really fires up a lot of the, the um, litigation boom in the United States. Well, that's what I was going to ask, because when I've been in the United States, I see the commercials and it's like, we only get paid if you do. So if they don't win the case or if they don't, if you don't get paid, then the lawyer doesn't get paid. And I understand that it makes sense to have, you know, your interests both aligned, but it makes it really no risk for someone to sue. So that would just tell me that they're just going to sue for everything because it, it, there's really no downside for the, for the person. Exactly. And, and, and for the law firm as well. That's why you have these, you know, litigation factories where, you know, young lawyers told, hey, you have to file five lawsuits today because, you know, the incremental cost of filing that lawsuit is very, very low to the to the law firm. That's why they're willing to do it on a contingency fee basis because they might not win all of them, but, you know, some they're going to win and they're going to get huge payouts. Most of them aren't going to go to trial, which means they're going to be settled. That means in most instances, you know, either the defendant or the defendant's insurer is going to agree to pay them something just to go away. And that, to me, you know, undermines the whole concept of of justice, of right and wrong. So, you know, the second point where the UK system deviates from the US system is the UK has a very firm loser pays principle. So, you know, Mikhail, you can sue me if you want. Um, I can go out and spend all the time, energy, and resources defending myself, and, and, and assuming I win, then you have to pay me my, my legal fees. And I think that, that's something, that would be a great legal reform that we could have in the states that would cut down on a lot of lawsuits. It would, it would embolden defendants to, to fight harder and be willing to spend more time and energy to defend their position. Because I hear it every single day where, you know, insurance companies will say, well, you know, it's a $200,000 um, claim and, you know, if this goes to jury, we could lose a lot more than that. And, you know, it's probably better that we just settle. Whereas if they knew, hey, we go out there and fight hard, we win, you know, it's the plaintiff uh, and their lawyers or, or insurance companies that are going to be on the hook for paying us, that, that would really change the dynamic. So... You know, I, I would really like to see that. But, you know, until that day happens, you know, you can't depend on, you know, that as a U.S. defendant. So that's why you have to really look at utilizing other jurisdictions to, to set up structures to protect your assets in so that when the lawsuit comes in the States, you know, you don't have assets that the plaintiff can go after. And if they go into some of these other jurisdictions, instead of having a pro-plaintiff system, they have pro-defense systems that are designed to insulate assets and make it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for a, for a would-be plaintiff to get after the asset. Okay, so let's, let's dig into that one a little bit. So talk to me about the offshore markets, how this kind of works, and then maybe actually even start off with um, a definition of offshore so that people are all on the same page when we use this word offshore. Sure, sure. I mean, sometimes the word offshore is used in a in a pejorative kind of way, particularly by, you know, sometimes governments and, and, and tax authorities and what have you. But, you know, offshore just means any jurisdiction that is not, you know, the jurisdiction that you're from. So, you know, what a lot of Americans don't realize 
is that the largest, by far, tax haven in the world, you know, if you want to look at this term offshore in a very generic way, the largest tax haven is the United States. Well, yeah, of course, with Delaware and Wyoming and places like this. Well, not only that, but, you, you know, but also let's say you're a German and you come and, you know, invest your money in the New York Stock Exchange and, you know, you buy Apple today for 100 bucks and sell it tomorrow for 120 bucks. You don't pay any capital gains tax. You pay no tax on that transaction. So, you know, the U.S. is not a tax haven for you and me because we're American and the, you know, U.S. I'm Canadian, Joel. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Michelle. Well, Canada, Canada, Canada has a really great system in the sense that, that, um, you know, they only tax, um, the residents. So if you, as a, as an expat living outside of Canada, you can escape their, uh, tax system. But, but the point I'm trying to make is it's one of the main reasons I've been overseas for 20 years, besides the, the fact that I actually enjoy it and I love living overseas. But yeah, I, I'm happy to live in the Middle East in a tax-free country, or at least an income tax-free country, and I'm a non-resident of Canada. So I have all my structures set up to make sure I don't pay over there. And we can, we can come back to residency and citizenship in a, in a bit, but, but to, to specifically answer your question about offshore, offshore just means you're utilizing a jurisdiction other than your own, generally for some kind of benefit, whether it's a tax benefit, whether it's for a, in this case, litigation benefit, you're trying to move money. I mean, the old saying is that capital flows to where it's treated best. So, you know, you can imagine that there are countries in the world that will never, ever compete with the United States when it comes to the U.S. capital markets. Let's say a little tiny country that I'm very fond of and spent a lot of my time and energy in is Belize. So you have this little speck of a country on the Yucatan, you know, 350,000 people. How are they ever going to compete with the U.S.? You know, when it comes to uh, capital formation, when it comes to all the ways that, that the U.S. attracts money from around the world. So, well, one way they can do it is to have very protective legislation when it comes to certain things. Trusts are a good example where, you know, if I create a trust for you today and tomorrow somebody sues you, they're not going to be able to get at that asset. And by creating a protective legal system, that's the way that they can compete because money's going to go where it's treated best. And if, if your money, you're worried about somebody suing you and taking it, well, you care a lot more about protecting the corpus. You, you care about that a lot more than what's the rate of return you're going to get, you know, from, from a bank CD or, or, or a stock bond or mutual fund investment, right? I mean, if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you know, you're not worried about the return on investment if you're worried about just keeping what you have. So if, if your chances of keeping what you have greatly improve because, you know, you move money to a trust in Belize, doesn't have to be Belize, I'm just using that as an example, then, you know, you're going to consider moving your money there. And, and that's really, you know, there's about, oh, there's about 43, I think at last count, there's about 43 um, offshore jurisdictions that offer some kind of tax benefit or like a zero tax or a low tax uh, jurisdiction. And, and that doesn't mean that you're not going to pay tax. In fact, for Americans, unfortunately, they're taxed on their worldwide income. So we don't have the option you have as a Canadian where you can simply move abroad and then not pay U.S. tax. 
there is something called the foreign income exclusion that can exclude about $100,000 of income. But, you know, it doesn't apply to passive income. It doesn't apply to income over the 100000 It doesn't apply to estate taxes and, and things like that. So, um, you know, the, the, the offshore jurisdictions of the world are designed so that you can put money there. You won't pay taxes there. That doesn't mean you, you're not going to pay your, your home country taxes. In many cases, in most cases, you will, particularly if you're American. Canadian, you won't, um, if you're not, if you're not resident there. Uh, a lot of European countries, their tax system is based on residence. So if you live there, you would, and, and you put your money in an offshore tax haven, you would still pay tax on that money. But if you moved out of that country, you would not. So that's a, that's an important distinction. And for, you know, for a lot of wealthy people, non-American wealthy people, it can influence their decision to live abroad. And that's where residency and second passports come into play. And, you know, as an American, you're really your only choice if you're trying to, you know, escape taxation um, and you create great structures and you have your assets protected offshore. You're still paying the same amount of taxes as if you had your money sitting in a bank and you know, Pittsburgh or Dallas or, 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 you know, San Francisco. The only way at that point would be an actual expatriation. Uh, and, and, and so that's why, you know, it's not huge numbers. I think at last count, it's about 8,000. I think on average, um, there's about 8,000 Americans a year that are formally expatriating. And that doesn't mean like your show just for expats. That's sort of a nickname, a slang term for people who sort of live and work abroad uh, other in a country other than their own, um, when you use the legal term expatriation, what you really mean is giving up your citizenship. So, you know, we, we do probably as many expatriations as, as other firms in, in the field. Um, it's not a huge demand, but, you know, many people want to go the first step and get a residency or a second citizenship somewhere. And then, you know, maybe three years, five years, ten years later, they may decide, okay, I'm comfortable enough with my passport, my second passport, particularly if you have a great second passport like a Canadian one, then, you know, you could become Canadian and live outside of Canada and not pay any, you know, Canadian tax. And if you're expatriated, then you wouldn't pay any U.S. tax either. But I'm kind of mixing up the concept of asset protection, which is really just protecting what you have and the tax consequences, which is part of asset protection planning, right? I mean, if I can, if I can slow down or defer taxes by using things like my, my IRA or, or my insurance, uh, or, you know, other techniques that I can get legal tax deferral, well, that, that's certainly a form of asset protection too. So I guess one of my, main questions and and I, I and I imagine that a lot of my listeners might be thinking the same thing if if they've been watching the news or they saw the Panama papers and and they hear these words offshore that are thrown around. So straight off the bat, is there anything illegal or dodgy or unethical about using the offshore markets in this manner? No, I mean, look, um, again, the offshore just means outside your home country, okay? Think about the kind of jurisdiction shopping that people do even in the U.S., right? I mean, I live in Pennsylvania, but, you know, there could be many reasons why I would want to set up a company, let's say, in Delaware or, 
know, Montana or some other state because I would get some kind of benefit by doing that. And, and it, you know, when you talk about offshore, you're talking about the exact same thing, just the next dimension, which is, which is on a worldwide basis. Now, the real, the, the real question of abuse, some people call harmful practices, comes into play if you are basing your structure on the notion of secrecy. And for many, many years, from let's say World War II up until, you know, maybe the 80s, let's say for, for, uh, 40, 45 years, there, there was a lot of that going on. You know, if you rent the movie The Firm sometime, you can, you can get a, a good, you know, look at the way the offshore jurisdictions were perceived in the 70s and the 80s. And, um, you know, but now there's so much transparency, transparency with trusts, with companies, with bank accounts, with brokerage accounts, that, that you really can't, um, take the notion that I'm going to put my money in a different jurisdiction and I'm going to keep it quiet. I'm not going to tell anybody about it and I'm not going to pay any tax. I mean, that, that is illegal, right? That's called tax evasion. And, you know, people occasionally call me or see me at a conference. Usually it's quite innocent because they don't really know. They'll just say, hey, you know, can you help me do this so that I don't ever have to pay taxes again? And I say, well, it doesn't really work that way. Um, if they insist, you know, and they're just looking for a jurisdiction where they can hide their money, you know, then we send them off, you know, packing and say, you know, if you want to, if you want to commit a crime, you, you, you don't, you don't need us uh, to do that. And there may be a few jurisdictions and banks out there that you could still try and do that. But most people that took that approach, you know, anywhere from the 40s to the 80s, uh, you know, eventually had to come clean either through what's called the offshore voluntary disclosure initiative. Um, and it was really because more and more laws were put into place to force foreign banks to disclose their, their U.S. customers. Now, you know, the, the most recent thing is called FATCA, F-A-T-C-A, which is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. And basically it tells banks all over the world, you must disclose <coughs> information about U.S. Uh, customers. And if you don't, then whenever you want to try to have money move into or out of your accounts into other U.S. compliant banks, whether it's actual U.S. banks or other foreign banks that are compliant with U.S. law, there's going to be a 30% withholding tax on the gross amount. So imagine you're trying to do, you know, a basic transaction. You're trying to wire $100,000 somewhere. You, you send it to a non-compliant jurisdiction. Plus, you know, $30,000 is gone. Your hundred thousand turns into seventy thousand. Well, nobody's going to do that. So because of that, you know, the the consumer in a way is enforcing FATCA, enforcing you know more than a hundred thousand financial institutions from around the world to be compliant with U.S. law. And and once you have that compliance, you know, and and you know, I would say it started maybe about ten years ago in Switzerland. That that was the the big hammer came down. Uh, you may have read about the, like the UBS that preceded the, the Panama Papers that you mentioned. I mean, that was the Panama Papers was sort of one of the last efforts to try to hide um, identities of beneficial owners. You know that a lot of the, the Panamanian structures would use Panamanian lawyers as 
sort of front people for corporate entities and, and what have you. Um, the reality now is the banks won't accept that. I mean, if, if you set up a company and you say, you know, the owner is this lawyer and that lawyer, you know, they're not going to open the account. Like, they want to know who the, what's called UBO, ultimate beneficial owner is. If you say it's a trust, okay, well, who's the grantor of the trust? Who's the beneficiary of the trust? If you say it's a company, okay, who are the shareholders? Who are the directors? And you have to, you know, work your way, no matter how the structure is, down to this ultimate beneficial owner. Uh, otherwise, banks aren't going to open the account. So, so that's kind of the, the world that we live in today. But, but I, I say that's an advantage. That's not a disadvantage. You know, I, I mean, before, if you were hiding your money, then you were worried that, you know, some IRS agent with a gun and a badge was going to show up at your house and cart you away for, you know, for, for hiding your money. Um, I think it's really more, to me, the power of the offshore jurisdiction isn't to hide it. It's to let would-be plaintiffs and would-be lawyers that represent the would-be plaintiffs know that you are not going to ever be the low-hanging fruit. You are not going to allow them to green mail or blackmail you for, you know, for the nuisance value of a, of a lawsuit because your assets aren't here. They're somewhere else. And you're going to disclose, you know, they'll, they'll find out through depositions or in, you know, when they subpoena your tax returns or whatever. They're going to find out that you've got a foundation in Liechtenstein or a trust in Belize or, you know, an LLC in Nevis or whatever it is that you have. And, you know, by them realizing that, you know, that green mail is not going to work and they're going to have to roll up their sleeves. They're going to have to work 10 times harder and the chances of them being successful goes down 90, 95, 98, 99%. So what lawyer, I think going back to the example of the young lawyer who's being told, hey, you have to file five lawsuits today, why would that lawyer want to get involved in trying to sue one of my clients that has their assets in a trust and beliefs? You see what I mean? Like the effort involved would be much, much greater. And and by the way, most most trusts have built into them, we do it all the time, we build in what are called flight clauses. So if that plaintiff comes to Belize and manages to get a court to say, okay, we'll allow you to proceed with the litigation, and it proceeds for six months or a year or two years, and, you know, there's any worry at all that the, you know, that the trust is going to lose and have to, you know, play, pay assets to the plaintiff, well, you know, there's a, there's a, clause in the trust that's going to allow the trust to just up and move to another jurisdiction and that plaintiff, you know, they might end up with a, a worthless judgment in some country and then they're going to have to find out where the trust went and start all over again. So, you know, I, I, I tell clients, look, it's not like... That would be pretty infuriating, I imagine. Exactly. And, and I tell clients, look, you know, it's not like... it's What we're really trying to do is we're trying to build walls of protection, right? If you've seen one of my presentations, I like I have like a, a castle sitting on a hill with a moat around it and a and a wall around it, you know, and the you know, you, you know, that's the that's the image that you want to convey. And, you know, if we have time for a quick story, I'll tell you one of the first uh cases that I worked on. I was young I was maybe 26, 27 years old, and uh, so this is going back, 
not quite 30 years, and um, I was representing a, a physician who had sold his medical practice to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and he sold it for about $3 million, uh, paid a bunch of taxes, and, you know, we transferred a little bit over $2 million, I think it was about $2.2 million to an asset protection trust that we had created for him in uh, in Belize, going back to that <laughs> as the example. And about six months after we uh, set up the trust and funded it, a, a former nurse brought a um, a whistleblower case against him, claiming that he had defrauded Medicaid and Medicare um, for several million dollars. And and then you'd ask yourself, well, why would somebody do that? Well, you know, the the government has what's called whistleblower um, rewards. I mean, it's basically like a bounty system where if you turn somebody in and the government recaptures money, you get, I think it's 10% of the amount. So if they had captured $2 million from my client, then, you know, this nurse would have gotten $200,000. And, and so, but of course, if, if the claim is that you've defrauded the government, that's not, that's no longer just a civil matter. So this became both a civil and a criminal matter. And you can imagine my, my client was very, you know, stressed out about the whole thing. And, uh, you know, about six months after that, so a year into it, the judge in the criminal matter threw the case out, dismissed it with prejudice and said, apologize to my client in open court, said that there had been no, you know, no credible evidence entered, provided to, you know, suggest that, that, that the doctor had done anything wrong. And, you know, basically scolded the, the lawyers for the plaintiff. So the criminal case was thrown out, and now <clears throat> what about the civil case? I mean, that should go away too, right? I mean, if the criminal case is thrown out, you'd think the civil case would as well. But unfortunately, that's not how the the legal system works in the U.S. So that case went on um, several more months, and finally the plaintiff scheduled a deposition, which took place in a law firm boardroom and in that boardroom the um basic question that they really wanted to know was what happened to the money that you got from selling your practice we explained about the taxes that were paid and things like that and then we you know got down to the trust and we transferred you know two million plus dollars to this trust and beliefs at which point you know the eyebrows raised on the other side of the table um, the lawyers asked if they could take a, um, a small break to go out in the hall and confer with their clients. We said, sure. They went out and talked to their client and came back five minutes later and said, you know, we're going to have to reschedule this deposition. Um, uh, and that deposition was never rescheduled. In fact, uh, about 30 days later, the case was dismissed. And, you know, it was dismissed because, you know, what happened was the lawyers went out in the hall and said, well, look, this, this isn't a, a normal case. This is, um, you know, we're going to have to file suit in a foreign country and we're willing to do that, but we're not willing to do it on a contingency fee basis anymore, which means, you know, Nurse Jones, you're going to have to cough up twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. She said, well, wait a minute. What happened to, you know, no fee unless you get money from me? And, you know, they said, well, that doesn't work with, you know, foreign lawsuits. 
and she wasn't willing to pay, so the whole thing just fell apart. And the point I'm trying to make with that story is that it fell apart not because we were hiding anything, you know, and we weren't in the shadows, we weren't denying that existed. No, quite the contrary. We're saying, here's the money. It's in a foreign trust. Here's a copy of the trust document. Here's the business card of the trustee in Belize. If you have any questions, contact them, right? And now the lawyer realizes that, okay, they think they're playing the same game, but the, but the playing field has changed dramatically. And instead of them, you know, having a field that's tilted against the defendant, it's exactly the opposite. Now they're trying to run up Mount Everest. And they're like, well, you know, we could do much more profitable things with our time than spend years and probably get nowhere. That, that to me is the power of the offshore jurisdiction, the offshore bank, the offshore brokerage account, the, you know, the gold vault in Switzerland, whatever, whatever combination of, of legal structures that you can put together, you know, that works for a client. That, that's really the power. It's not by hiding. It's by, at the right moment, letting your adversary know this is the way it is. This is how it exists. Um, you know, I was thinking about Sun Tzu and his famous General Sun Tzu, you know, 2,500 years ago, wrote a book called The Art of War. And there's a passage in there where he basically says, you know, the, 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 the smart general prepares for battle in such a way that he can't lose the war. In other words, he wasn't worried about winning the war. He was just worried about making sure that he couldn't lose the war. And then from that, from that posture, he can figure out how to win the war. And I think asset protection planning is the same way. You know, whatever amount of money you bring, you call me or contact me or write me, say, hey, you know, I've got $50,000 or $50 million or any amount in between. You know, my job is to make sure that you keep that money. And once we build the right structure and strategy and jurisdiction to do that, you know, now you can work with your investment advisors and other people and figure out how you want to grow your, your assets. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like that EF Hutton commercial, you know, it's not what you make, it's, it's what you keep. And, uh, maybe that, maybe you're too young for that detail. I don't know. I know I'm that one. I'm not too young for, but okay. So, Straight off the bat, then, why is it, and, and I know the answer, but I, I want to hear you say it, is why don't people just use a normal onshore asset protection lawyer, someone just in the United States who does similar work to you? Like, like talk me through that part of it. Yeah. Well, for a lot of people, that is what they do. And, and for, you know, a good percentage of those people, it works out fine. But there are a couple of main reasons why you would not want to to do that. First of all, going back to the, you know, sort of the green mail, black mail, you know, if you're trying to take that off the table, if you're trying to change the jurisdiction, make it harder for the plaintiff to, to sue you and come after your money, you don't actually do that, even by putting it in a trust. Um, you know, I, if I put it in a trust and somebody sues the trust, well, now the trustee has to decide, am I going to defend the lawsuit? Am I going to hire a lawyer? You know, they, they, they're still going to have the same nuisance value to deal with. Um, and then they haven't changed the jurisdiction either. So, you know, it, you know, a lot of states have what are called, um, look back provisions. And the look back provisions say that 
you know, if if um, I put money in a standard trust, the plaintiff can claim that I did that, you know, that, that that's what's called a fraudulent conveyance. They can say, oh, you know, Nagel transferred that money into a trust so that I, you know, the, the angel plaintiff couldn't get at that money. And that's fraudulent. That's a fraudulent conveyance. And now the judge is going to have to decide whether it was or whether it wasn't. And that means that my risk of the trust being pierced, the company being pierced, the assets being pulled back out judicially, you know, that that still exists. And I'll give you one, one good example. California. We all like to rip on California. California has one of the most liberal look-back provisions that exists. It's three years. So imagine, going back to the example we used a, a, a little while ago, imagine that you're a physician and you deliver premature babies in Los Angeles County. And you'd like to build up some assets for yourself, for your retirement, for your children, for your grandchildren. And you're thinking the best way to do that, in fact, your advisor tells you, well, what you really ought to do is set up a trust. But then you figure out, and you, you learn, because you talk to me or someone else that is active in this area, that, well, a plaintiff can bring a suit against that trust for up to three years after I created the trust. And by the way, if it's a minor, which if you're delivering premature babies by very nature, you're, you've, you know, you've just brought a new person into the world, that three year statute of limitations doesn't start kicking until the baby becomes an adult, which means 18 more years, which means now 21 years has to go by, you know, and in, in, in the other case, it's three years. But what's the likelihood that a, an obstetrician that delivers babies in LA County can ever go three years without being sued. Not very likely at all. And, and so what that means is California is saying that as a matter of public policy, a physician can't protect their assets. That's basically what the law is, is saying. So how, how does that, how does that, um, doctor in this case get protection for those assets? Well, they have to use an offshore jurisdiction where there is no three-year look-back period. I can create the trust today. <coughs> Excuse me. You can call me. You can sue me tomorrow, and they're not going to be after, able to go after those assets. In other words, in, in a jurisdiction like Belize, the lawsuit has to be the lawsuit has to precede the creation of the structure to be able to make a claim against those assets. So. If, if, if you sue me today and I create a trust tomorrow and move my assets there, they're going to be able to make some claims, uh, against those assets. But conversely, if I create the trust today and you sue me tomorrow, well, sorry about your luck that you can't get at those assets. And it's because of that kind of legal treatment, um, that people like to create offshore asset protection structures. I'll give you just a couple more quick reasons beyond the core litigation because some of your listeners might say, oh, I'm not really that worried about being sued. So what you're saying, especially for the offshore part of it, is you really have to have these things in place beforehand. This is not like in response to getting sued, response to being uh, to someone coming after you. You need to have these in 
things in place today. This is not really something that you want to put off uh, down the road, you know? Yeah, exactly. That That's a really great point. And unfortunately, I would say we get a few calls per month, two or three or five, where, you know, in the first five minutes of the conversation, somebody will say, oh, Mr. Nagel, you know, this bad thing happened. I, 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 I got sued. I was named in a lawsuit. Uh, I was in an accident and I got a notice saying that there were, you know, people were suing me or whatever. You know, we can't really, I'm not saying that you as an individual can't take steps even then, but as a lawyer, we can't really help you at that point because of going back to these, this concept of a fraudulent conveyance. If, if we knowingly help somebody, you know, to, to, um, evade a legitimate creditor, then it would be a fraudulent conveyance, not only of the, of the individual, but of the lawyer helping the individual, in which case, you know, then I would be subject to, you know, I, I, I would be the next person to be sued if I did that. So you always want to um, set up any kind of legal structure, you know, when it's a, a bright, sunny day, not when there's a storm on the horizon. Yeah. And the more time you can put between when you create a structure and when, um, you know, and when a lawsuit comes, the better. I, I actually think for... For young doctors, there ought to be a class, you know, their their last year of medical school that basically says set up your, you know, set up your structure today before uh, before you graduate because you know the reality is um, a very very high percentage of doctors, you know, I'm using doctors as an example. There's other professions as well, but probably none more litigious than than doctors. And doctors, you know, no matter how careful they are, no matter how educated and smart and you know no matter how much diligence they 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 do in their um in their practice um you know any patient at any day can file a suit against them and then you're in a u.s jury system where plain where juries want to find fault and wants to give compensation so you know if you're coming from a medical um environment not only medical um i get i get uh, lawyers, for example, <laughs> one of my main client groups are plaintiff lawyers. And I, I can remember an old timer who said, I know what I can do to other people. I don't want anybody doing that to me. <laughs> that's a brilliant line. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's, that was 15 years ago. And I still remember like it was yesterday because it, it had such a, a big impact on me. I'm like, wait a minute, you're, you're on the other side. But he was, you know, he was savvy enough to, want to differentiate his profession, which was going after people and, and his assets, which, which he wanted to protect like everyone else. So, you know, th- those are really the, the main areas with regard to litigation. And, uh, you know, we could probably talk about a couple other quick areas if you want that are, you know, maybe equally as important for some people who aren't targets of litigation. They, they might even be more important as to why they would create the, you know, their structure and, and structure their affairs outside their home country. Well, I would definitely like to hear about that. I want to get, I want to spend a bit of time during the conversation on the strategies themselves. But what you just said kind of remind me, I was watching a presentation that you did. This was, I think, six months ago or something like that um, at a conference. And you were telling a story about um, uh, another lawyer who stood up and said, oh, I've never seen a structure that I can't pierce. 
And then you kind of stood up and, and I don't know if you remember the story or not that I'm referring to, but if you do, like if you can uh, kind of relate, I suppose, <laughs> the rest of the story, um, I thought it was very uh, illustrative, I suppose. No, it was a, yeah, it was a, um, you know, it was a, a legal conference and we were talking about, um, you know, the right ways to do planning and we had this sort of young, cocky plaintiff lawyer who was basically, his point was that anybody that works in the corporate side that creates legal structures, whether it's companies or trusts or foundations, and I guess we'll, we'll move into those specifically in a minute, but anybody that creates those kinds of things, you know, that was kind of a waste of time that, that we're just charging people money to set these things up. And they really don't work because he's the superstar gifted plaintiff lawyer and he can always find a way around it. And it's a trust till he'll, he'll go after the fraudulent conveyances. If it's a, it's a corporate entity, he'll look for ways to pierce the corporate structure. And, and so he made the comment that there had never been a, a corporate or legal structure that he hadn't been able to pierce on behalf of his plaintiff client. And he said it in a very, you know, sort of cocky way. And that sort of, you know, wrangled me a little bit. So I, I didn't actually interrupt him. He was giving a presentation, but I, but my presentation was next. And even though I had prepared remarks, I started by challenging his claim and saying that um, in my nearly 30 years of asset protection planning, that I had never had a client lose money because any plaintiff lawyer was ever able to pierce any of the structures. And then, of course, the moderator had to jump in and say, okay, so here's the guy who says he, he can never, there's no structure that can't be pierced. And here's the guy who says, you know, he's, he's never had one of his structures pierced. So who's right? And at the end, the, the, um, plaintiff lawyer had to acknowledge that the, that his claim was solely a claim based on, you know, U.S. domestic law and that his claim did not um, extend to jurisdictions outside the United States. And of course, my practice is virtually, not 100%, but it's, it's 98% uh, the opposite. It's, it's outside the U.S. I mean, we're working in 43 jurisdictions around the world and we're, we're working with jurisdictions where we know we're going to be able to, um, prevent lawsuits from, um, occurring. And if they do occur, you know, we're going to build barriers and at the end, we're going to, you know, like I said, have flight clauses, move the money. And, and, uh, so, you know, to reiterate my point, I've had clients that have made bad investment decisions and lost money that way. Um, but none of them have ever lost money because someone was able to, you know, reach in, pierce their, their structure and, and take money away from them. And, uh, you know, it's not something that I gloat over or flout or shove in somebody else's face. It's just reality. I mean, we work hard every day to, you know, make sure we're up on the right jurisdictions. And again, these jurisdictions, they're working hard to attract capital. And the way they do that is making these protective laws that we're taking advantage of. So um, I'll let that guy, you know, sort of win the U.S. battle because to me that that fight has already happened. And, you know, the unfortunately, that, that <laughs> the plaintiff lawyers have won. And I don't see... Um, anything happening anytime soon 
where, you know, I mean, you see how dysfunctional Washington is now. Imagine, you know, Republican and Democrats getting together and coming up with real tort reform when, you know, 90 plus percent of congressmen and senators are lawyers. I mean, they, they don't have any incentive to, to change the law. The, you know, the plaintiff, uh, bar in the United States is one of the biggest lobbying groups. They, you know, give, you know, millions and millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to Congress every year to protect their, their position. And, and so we're not going to have tort reform. If literally, you know, if I could go fight that fight, I would, but I can't. So, you know, rather than fighting it at the, at the national level, we fight it every day on the individual level. And, you know, I'm happy that, uh, and proud that our clients have never had, you know, their assets forcibly taken away from them. And we're going to keep working hard. We've been at it 30 years and, you know, God willing, we'll be at it 30 more. And, um, you know, I've got seven kids, so I'm not going to retire anytime soon. Um, we'll keep, you know, working. <laughs> we, we had a nice conversation for a half an hour before the interview about, uh, about your kids so that I can understand, uh, wanting to protect them, protect your assets, protect your clients' assets and everybody's got family. So it's, it is really important work that you're doing. And it's, it's one of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on the show. Well, thank you. Like I said, it's really, really nice to be here. And, uh, um, you know, I, I have done other, other interviews where the, the, um, you know, the interviewer is not as supportive as you are. And I'm used to, you know, having to more forcefully defend the, the, the notion that it is, um, you know, that we're not some kind of economic Benedict Arnolds who are, you know, leeching money out of the system. That's really not what it's about. I mean, you know, if, if the client is playing by the rules and, you know, paying their taxes, doing all those things, um, you know, to tell them that they can't protect their assets for themselves, for their retirement, for their children, for their grandchildren, you know, to me, that completely goes against the whole, you know, foundation on which America was, was founded and built and, you know, has become the greatest country in the world. And, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to defend that position where I have to, but I'm, I'm glad with you today. I don't have to defend it too much. I can tell we have kindred, uh, kindred spirits here. Well, like I said before, I've been reading your content and watching interviews for you for six months. So I already know and understand quite a bit of things uh, about what you do, but it's so interesting for me to kind of ask my questions like, okay, explain a little bit more about this. Okay, how does this work? Can you refresh my memory? Like, it makes it really exciting for me because, like I said, I've, I've watched so many of your things before because you're you're quite prominent in this space. If you look for international um, asset protection, like your name comes up straight away. So it's quite amazing to have you on the show. So I'm, I'm very happy with that. Well, thanks. Michelle. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, I, I, one of my friends, Kathleen Petticord said one time, you know, it takes 25 years to become an overnight success. And, uh, I feel the same. I mean, you know, we just, we just get up and go to work and do the same thing every day. And, uh, you know, I'm happy that some people have, you know, felt that, uh, what we do is, is worthwhile. And, um, other people have said that with all the dysfunction in Washington, you know, we have an unlimited marketing budget that we don't have to pay for. Um, and it's true because the phones never stop ringing. Um, uh, but you know, it's something I enjoy doing. I, I feel, you know, very just in the cause. I don't feel like I'm just, you know, moving papers from the right side of my desk to the left side of my desk. We're, we're giving people real value. 
um, for the money they pay us. And, uh, you know, when I hear stories sometimes five, ten years later where somebody that we set up a structure for, you know, when the sun was shining, you know, when the when the storm cloud came and they were able to withstand it or overcome it, um, you know, and, and, and they're back on their feet and, you know, otherwise they would have lost everything. Um, that to me, that's very gratifying, you know. Absolutely. What you're doing really makes a difference. And I feel the same way about a lot of the work that I do because I work with the offshore markets and I help people set up. I don't help people with the trusts. I have other people that do things like that. But at least for the offshore companies and help people to legally uh, reduce their tax bill and to protect their assets, these are really important things. And I feel like I'm making a difference in the world. So taking it to the next level, which is what you're doing, um, I, I can see why that would be so, so rewarding. Just going to take a really quick break. As I was saying before today's interview began, Joel and I created a new infograph called 15 Global Strategies to Protect Your Wealth. In it, we clearly map out each step in a logical progression of what you should be doing to protect your assets using truly international strategies. Honestly, I don't think you're going to find this type of intel anywhere else online. It's truly unique. If you'd like to download your copy of 15 Global Strategies to Protect Your Wealth for free and to learn more about Joel's strategies for wealth protection and even find out how Joel and his team can help you to put some of these strategies into place, just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. Yeah, I mean, you know, every client's different, and uh, sometimes you do work for a client, you know, and then they go away, you never hear from them again, so you don't really you know, necessarily see or, or feel the impact. But other times, like I said, you do. And people have even, you know, written to me many years after I've done work for them to, you know, to thank me um, because, you know, whatever they feared came to pass and they were able to weather the storm because of the, you know, because of the structure we created for them. I mean, I, I'm just thinking of one client in particular was a, a big contractor in the States and, uh, had a very high net worth and um, was concerned that in some of these large um, construction contracts, he had to pledge all of his assets, including all of his personal assets, to a a bonding company, which is you know you have these giant bonding companies, and it's it's so that a small or mid-sized company can bid on a big contract, right? So the the company bids on a hundred million dollar uh job and they might only have five million dollars in capital and a state or federal agency says well you have to be bonded to be able to bid on this contract because you don't have enough you know you don't have enough net worth. So you go to a bonding company, the bonding company says, okay, we'll give you the hundred million dollar bond, but you have to pledge all of your assets, your corporate assets, your individual assets, everything to to us. Otherwise we're not going to give you the bond. And fellow was really concerned about it because, as you can imagine, in construction business, bad things happen. And um, we created a, uh, an asset protection trust uh, for the fellow, for himself, and for his children. And he moved about, it wasn't a huge amount of money. I mean, you know, that's all relative, right? But uh, I think he moved about a million and a half dollars into his trust. And... Um, 
almost 10 years later, he was doing a job, a, a, a large bridge job, and uh, the bridge, um, you know, there was some activity where the um, the foundation gave away, and the half-built bridge collapsed. Unfortunately, several people got killed, some workers, so that was tragic. Um, but you can imagine at that point, um, there's no way that the contractor can build the, the bridge for, you know, start from scratch and build it all over again within the same budget. So essentially the bonding company had to step in, cost, you know, a, a, an exceptional amount of money. I think it might have been as much as $100 million to, to basically redo this bridge. And the fellow would have, would have essentially been bankrupt. Um, but, you know, fortunately had this, this trust that was offshore. You know, even a big insurance company wasn't going to try to go after it because it was not considered part of his assets. Um, whereas things like your personal home are your assets. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, your home's protected in the states. And in some states like Florida and Texas, you know, it is protected pretty well. But if you pledge it, so there's no there's no protection. So you know this is a great example of a, of a case where you know if he had only used domestic planning, uh, everything would have been gone. He would have been you know wiped out, probably been forced to you know retire and maybe you know go on go on social security and you know sit in a rocking chair for the rest of his days. But but instead he used the the money in his trust. Made a loan back to himself, started a new company, and uh, now his company is bigger and better than it was, you know, before that happened. So, you know, it's it's the classic ounce of prevention. You know, you 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 spend a little bit of time, a little bit of effort, a little bit of money uh, when you don't have to, so that um, you know when bad things happen, you're you're protected. Okay, so Joel. Talk to me about a couple of the reasons besides just litigation protection for wanting to set up some of these structures, because we've spent a lot of time on that, but I know there are a few other reasons that people might want to consider these types of structures. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that question. It's a good one. I mean, there's there's sort of three main reasons that people want to create structures outside of their home country, to use that, going back to that generic offshore world word, sorry. And the... You know, litigation is an important one. And for, for some people like physicians, we mentioned a few times, it's the only thing they really care about. Because if you can't protect what you have, you know, you're not worried about, you know, a return on investment. You're just, you know, you're, if you, if you lose what you have, then, um, then you have nothing. So you're not worried about a return on, on the investment. You're a, ret- a return of the investment. So litigation is certainly uh, very important. But I get clients all the time who aren't worried about um, litigation. They may be retired. They may work for a big multinational company where the company itself has all the liability, and as employees, they really don't have liability, or if there is liability, it's covered by insurances and things like that. So for those people, there are two other uh, categories, I would say, that largely impact their decision to create their structure offshore versus onshore. The first has to do with investment options. You know, we like to think of ourselves as living in a very free country, but the reality is that between 75 and 80% of the world's investments are closed to U.S. investors. 
Why is that? Well, it's because, uh, you know, the U.S., the long arm of the U.S. regulatory system basically takes the position that if you allow an American to invest in your company, then you're subjecting your company to the the uh, regulatory oversight and control of the U.S. regulatory bodies, which is primarily the, the U.S. SEC, but also other things like the FTC and, and, and other, you know, alphabet soup agencies. And, and so, uh, you know, now you've got, for example, this whole Bitcoin craze going on. Most of those documents that you see flying around, if you get your hands on one of the investments, whether it's coming from Korea or Germany or, or Brazil or wherever, you'll see a, a notice where the, um, you know, Americans are not permitted to invest um, because the, the company doesn't want to expose itself to that kind of regulatory um, scrutiny and control by, you know, government agencies in Washington when maybe they have nothing to do with the U.S. So, so companies routinely restrict or exclude Americans. Now, when you create a foreign structure such as a foreign trust, the trust takes on the, the citizenship, if you will, the nationality of the jurisdiction where it's created. Because the trust isn't you, it's not me. It, it becomes its own, um, its own person. It's a juridical person, of course, not a, not a real person, but it's a, a legal juridical person. And that person has the nationality of the jurisdiction where it's created. So if we create the structure in Liechtenstein or, or, or the Cook Islands or Nevis or Belize or Panama or wherever, then that is the jurisdiction of that entity. And that entity can then invest into whatever investment it's trying, you're, you're trying to make that's close to us persons. I, I recently was asked by a client to, to vet a, a hedge fund that was based in Malaysia. And I went to the website and I started reading. I was on like the second or third page of this 80 page prospectus when a, a little thing popped up on my screen and it said, we've detected that your URL is emanating from inside the United States and this is not open to us investors. And boom, my screen goes blank. So, so I can't even, you know, look at the investment anymore. So what did I do? I contacted the, the client's trustee who's based outside the U.S. Said, could you please get this prospectus for me and download it, send it to me? And, you know, the client decided they wanted to make the investment. So we made the investment through the trust. And, you know, the, 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 the foreign trust was able to do what the U.S. person could not. So that, that's a powerful thing. You know, that starts to move out of the area of protecting what you have into the area of, you know, creating more wealth for yourself. And again, I'm not an investment advisor, so I'm not advising clients in that sense. But frequently, the client or the client and their investment advisor already knows what they want to do, and they're they're seeing the the structural impediment of being an American, you know, that they're trying to overcome. And asset protection structures, planning can can help do that. So that's that's sort of the second main area. We could spend, you know, an hour on that too, but I know we don't have enough time to do that. And then lastly, the third area has to do with estate planning. Now, you know, there's a lot of rules when it when it comes to how you can leave your your assets. But in general, 
the state doesn't permit you to leave an asset into perpetuity. There's something, it's an English common uh, law rule called the rule against perpetuities. And what that means is, you know, eventually within some period of time, you have to leave your assets to your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, a charity, whatever it is. But if you said, well, Joel, you know, I've got a lot of money, and rather than giving the corpus to anyone, I would like to keep it retained in a trust, and I just want the earnings to go to my children and heirs forever, or for the next thousand years, right? Now, in the U.S., you're not really going to be able to do that, and in, in offshore, you you are. So again, if if you're a client that has, you know, a couple million dollars and at the end of the day, what you have, you want to leave to your children and grandchildren, you could do that domestically. But, you know, when you start talking about people that have 50 million, 100 million or more, and, you know, maybe they don't, you know, the other thing is I hear all the time from, from wealthy clients, they say, I don't want to leave the corpus to my heirs because, you know, they might take the money and go, you know, buy a Ferrari and then wreck into a telephone pole. I want to dole out the money strategically. I want to give them, you know, down payment for a house. I want to help them with their college education. I want that they have a medical emergency. I want them to be able to access money for that. In other words, they don't want to turn their heirs into glorified welfare bombs who are sitting there waiting for the next check to show up, right? So the nice thing about the offshore jurisdiction is it allows people to sort of control their assets, even from beyond the grave. So I can literally say who gets my money, where, when, how, into basically, you know, into forever, almost. And, you know, at some point the money might run out or, you know, a million dollars in a hundred years probably isn't going to be worth what it is now. I get all that. But, you know, a lot of people really don't want to leave lump sums of money not only to individuals, but also to charities, universities. You know, if you if you leave your, let's say your local church, $5 million, and they go out and they build a, you know, a big new conference center and they spend it, but that drives up their operating costs. And now they can't raise on an ongoing basis enough money to, to cover those increased operating costs. You're actually doing them a disservice by giving them a big lump sum of money. Well, many of my clients feel that way, whether it's individual, whether it's charities, whether it's university, church, whatever. Um, so instead of giving a lump sum, they want to use an offshore structure to be a holding vehicle to protect it, to preserve it, to invest it, and then let the income come out, you know, basically forever to, you know, to their heirs. So, so those are just a couple of the, the, um, the main reasons, I could probably come up with a, a bunch more, but I would say those would be the big three. Litigation, investment, uh, access, and estate planning. Those those would be the three main reasons that, that clients would want to you know, create structures offshore. That's super interesting. I love it. Joel, I want to change gears a little bit. I want to dig into the strategies themselves because we've talked a lot now about the reasons, like what is asset protection? Why do we need it? And then specifically why we use the offshore structures and the offshore markets to do this. But let's go into the strategies themselves. And maybe you can highlight a few different ones, maybe for my listeners who don't have a lot of money they want to spend all the way up to the guys who are doing multiple million dollars a year. Yeah, yeah, great. 
That's a good question. I mean, you know, I think one of the things we talked about was giving out my free report, 15 Global Strategies to Protect Your Wealth. I know you'll talk about that more later, but, but that tries to break down some of these into different categories where people could kind of self-select where they are on the on the spectrum. And it's not that we wouldn't um, do a complicated structure for somebody even that didn't have a lot of money. But, you know, again, you don't want the costs of the legal work to be disproportionate in relation to the amount of money you have. So, you know, if somebody comes to me and they have under $100,000, I'm really not going to suggest any kind of real structure. I mean, you know, maybe a simple company or an LLC just to move assets out of their own name. Um, you know, a company and a bank account could just be the bank account, quite frankly. Um, but, you know, it could be an IBC or an LLC and a bank account. Uh, we might connect them to a gold or precious metals repository, which is outside the banking system. So if, if they're worried about, you know, the dollar crashing or hyperinflation or deflation or whatever they're worried about, you know, gold has been a store of value for 5,000 years. And, you know, having a little nest egg of, of gold or silver, platinum, palladium, whatever, whatever your metal of choice is, um, that can be an easy um, strategy that really doesn't require a lot of money. Um, the, 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 the offshore bank account to me makes complete sense. There's, there's little or no cost whatsoever. You have banks still that the doors are open for Americans. Um, and, um, you know, you can put 5,000, 10,000, however much you want there. And one of the reasons you want to do that is because, as I mentioned before, when the, you know, when the storm clouds appear on the horizon, that's not the time that you want to be running around trying to open a bank account. Um, you know, you, you, you're going to have to produce a, reference letter, utility bill, you know, you're going to have some hoops to jump through. But um, once you get the account open, you can put a little bit of money in it now. And then in the future, as you get more money or you sell a piece of property or you sell another investment um, or you decide you want to live part-time or full-time abroad, you know, then you can always top up the, the account. It's much easier to send money to someplace when you already have an account, uh, you know, to go from $10,000 to a couple hundred thousand than to go from zero to anything because the first deposit forming the relationship, you know, a, a lot of banks now, they want to meet you in person. They want, you know, background. They're going to do simple background checks on you. I mean, it, it used to be a couple days, but it was a couple weeks. Now in some jurisdictions, you know, it can take months to set up a bank account. So again, do it now while it's simple and it's, and it's easy. To me, those would be the kind of things that the, at the lowest end of the, the spectrum. When, when you go up into folks that maybe have from, let's say, a couple hundred thousand dollars to a million, there are good products and services out there that would be more um, institutional products that have already been created uh, that are good. You know, you could, you could access, let's say, an offshore hedge fund um, where – you know, they have a good uh, investment strategy that meets your philosophy. Uh, they're not creating that philosophy for you the way an investment advisor does it's all the way around. You're sort of shopping for the manager that that um, fits your uh, mentality about how 
what you believe is going to happen to the economy, to gold, to the dollar, real estate, whatever it is. And um, again, using um, corporate structure, maybe uh, you can start to get into some um, some trusts and foundations that are what I call pre-planned, which means that they they basically created a um, sort of a template where you know your name's going to go in at the top, your beneficiaries are going to go at the bottom, and it's it's not really a form that you can change. It's it's sort of a a, a, a structure that was designed to go across the the um, the high point of the of sort of the, the the middle part of the of the bell curve, and for people that don't want to spend, so kind of off the rack, opposed to something more boutique. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and 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 we don't actually do that, but we know lots of good um, banks and trust companies, and you know that 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 sell that kind of product. And quite frankly, it, it's much better than not having anything. So you know, I'm 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 all for it. Now, you know, then as you move up, let's say to million dollars or more, it doesn't have to be. Um, you know, again, if 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 you if you came to me with five hundred thousand dollars and you were a you know, 30-year-old obstetrician, I would advocate that you should have a, a more complicated structure because your peak earning years are still ahead of you. Conversely, if you're a retired school teacher with $2 million, I might say, hey, you know, you don't really want to do a, a um, you know, a, a, an individually um, type structured product because, you know, I don't see that you have a big risk profile that, that's going to, you know, require that. Um, but anyways, normally when people ask me, I'll tell them, you know, the high hundred thousands and the low millions, that's where you really start looking at, at tailored products, trusts and foundations primarily. Um, the reason that those two jump to the forefront is because both of those structures can be used in a way where there's a real transfer of asset from you to this structure that again is its own legal juridical person. And because it's its own legal juridical person, that means it's not your asset anymore. You can put your hand on the Bible, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, you know, the assets that you put in that structure are not yours. And so, to me, that's the best form of asset protection because if somebody's coming after you for an asset and you've, you know, legally given it away to an asset protection trust, they can't get it from you anymore. So that that's the whole, you know, the whole idea behind these types of structures. And when you come to a firm like mine, you know, we sit down, I'm going to take, you know, a hundred pages blank notepad and we're going to start talking. We're going to, you know, by the end, that notepad's going to be pretty filled up. And, um, you know, I'm going to go into all types of questions that we have for you and how you want the structure to work and when people can get distributions. And, you know, it's going to go on and on and on. And, and your structure is going to be literally different than anyone else's structure. That that's the you know if you work with a with a law firm that does that type of work, that's what you should expect. If you're just going to get the boilerplate you know document fill in your name here, sign at the bottom. Well, you don't really need you know I mean you could use a lawyer in a in a or a registered agent company in a in a foreign jurisdiction that sort of. You know, they paid to have a lawyer draft that for them once. And again, that's going to work for people. It's better than nothing. Um, but if you have specific needs and wants and, you know, family people and they're all different, 
this daughter can get her, you know, cut at your death, but this son, he's, you know, he's irresponsible with money. He needs to, you know, get allowance for the rest of his life. When you start going into those types of issues, you know, that's really where you really need that kind of individualized planning that, that we can help you with. And so that, that kicks in, that goes from, you know, a million dollars to, you know, up to any number you want. And then above that, you get into some really high-end products, things like family offices. You know, we help create family offices. That's sort of a, uh, it's a integration of a trust with a, with a, a corporate structure that's really designed to turn your family's assets into its own business. So the purpose of the business is to grow the family wealth. That's really what a family office is. And you bring on the necessary people to make that happen, whether it's lawyers, tax people, investment advisors. And, and for that, you know, shared family offices where you have one set up and, you know, families go to them with their money, you know, that might start at around 10 million. And, um, if it's an individual family office, where you're creating the family office just for one family, well, that that's going to be, you know, I would say 100 million, but maybe that's maybe that's too high. Maybe it's in the 50 to 70 million dollar range, and it's because you know the cost of a good family office when you start hiring professional staff like that uh, that are working full time for your needs, you know, you can easily spend a million dollars a year just on the just on the the personnel. So if you know you have Six, eight, ten people working, and the and the um, the cost is a million dollars a year. You know that would make sense if you only had ten or fifteen or twenty million, because that would certainly wipe out the you know the investment gains. The point is that you should have everything proportionate that the the um, structure that the cost not only to set up the structure, which you know as lawyers we really actually only get paid once. Where we, we get paid to create the legal structure and we're done. Um, as opposed to like a bank or investment advisor, people like that that are charging you on an ongoing basis. So you, you have the upfront legal costs to set up the structure and then you've got the ongoing cost to maintain it. So you've got trustee fees and tax fees and you know, all these different fees. And so you need to understand what those costs are going to be in relation to what you hope to make from your investment. If you say, well, I'm a pretty conservative investment guy, you know, I just want to shoot for five, six percent, you know, on, on, on twenty million dollars, that's that's a million bucks a year. So you don't want the cost of your structure uh to be a million bucks a year, else, you know, you never you're not gonna keep up with inflation. Um but if you have a hundred million dollars and you know you're getting five percent, that's five million bucks a year, well now maybe spending a million to you know, to create the family office and to have ongoing professional staff to operate it, you know, makes sense. So usually in the very first conversation, we try to narrow down where the client is on the spectrum. Um, frequently, um, it happens both ways. We'll get people at the low end that think they want, you know, they'll call me up and say, hey, I want to set up a family office. Okay, great. How much money do you have? Oh, I have $800,000. Well, no, that's not going to work. Um um, or, you know, you get people at the high end with a hundred million dollars and they're just very adverse to spending any money at all and say, well, you know, you could just take all that money and <laughs> buy gold and put it in a vault somewhere. But, 
you know, that's probably not really serving the interests as well. So the, the, the real challenge is to find that balance where the structure can pay for itself from the income within the structure and give the client the protection they want. When it all comes together, it's a really, it's a beautiful thing. You know, the client can sleep well at night because they're not worried about lawsuits. The, um, the cost can be absorbed. The structure is making money for the client. Um, and when, when all those things happen, again, it's, you know, it's really a wonderful thing. So for the lower end, things like investing in the offshore gold markets, which is something that I help some of my clients with, and the offshore banking and the uh, offshore incorporation, other things that I help with, you kind of stay away from those. Maybe you give some friendly advice, but you work more with the trusts onward. Is that right? Well, it's not that we, we, we don't have a product to sell. We're just selling our advice. Um, even for, you know, from low end to high end, there's probably a role for some of those products. I mean, you know, a lot of my clients have put 5%, 10% of their net worth in gold no matter where they are in the structure. Which is what I always recommend to people, at least, well, roughly 10%, I think, is a very uh, smart idea in precious metals. I mean, it's just, you know, it's like insurance, right? I mean, you're hoping that, you know, you don't really ever need it, but the moment when world chaos you know, takes over and the stock market crash and dollar crashes and, you know, everything goes to hell in the proverbial handbasket. Whatever you lose on the 90% will be more than made up for with the, with the increase in the value of the 10% of the gold you have. So it really is like insurance. In that. Well, I use it a lot of times because I look at the inflation in the United States and I look at places like Russia and China who are just buying gold hand over fist. And it's really to hedge against the inflation in the United States. Um, you know, my wife is from China. We visit there. We have properties there. I'm actually going back there next week to view the properties and spend some time with my mother and father-in-law. So I, I have a bit of a, a mix between the West and the East and see these things a little bit differently. But I think that you're right. Precious metals are a very important proponent. But I suppose my question is really more geared towards um, my listeners. Should they reach out to you for all of these things? Like when should they reach out to me? When should they reach out to you type of thing um, on the levels of asset protection, we could say? Well, you know, we we're happy to talk to folks. I mean, again, I think that if they um, look at that 15 global strategies to protect your wealth and they find themselves at that very, you know, low end where, you know, they're trying to protect 50, 100,000, we try to give them some good ideas. They wouldn't really um, probably want to hire us to do anything. So, um, you know, that's where somebody that has a pre-existing service or pre-existing product uh, is probably better. Um, again, we don't have anything to really sell other than our time and expertise. So it, it's really where they acknowledge that, hey, I'm probably, you know, modest to high end when it comes to, you know, first and foremost, their profile, their risk profile, uh, or they have specific investments they want to make or a specific estate plan. You know, it's generally, it's generally one of those things, Mikhail, where, you know, the people that need us know they need us. Um, so, you know, we don't have to try to sell anybody anything really. And folks that are, are looking to sort of dabble and, hey, it'd be nice to own some gold and stick it in Singapore, um, you know, because these guys are going to charge me, you know, 200 bucks a year and I could put $20,000, you know, there um, in a cost-effective way. 
they, they don't really need us. Um, we have those conversations all the time, particularly at conferences, because everybody will pigeonhole me for, you know, five, ten minutes and, and talk about that kind of stuff. But um, it's really the folks that know they need sort of an engineered, if you want to use that term, they need an engineered solution. Like, hey, I've got this problem, and I don't know what to do. Um, that's generally the people that are calling us. And even the even the banks and the the registered agents offshore and, and folks like you, you know, when you hear a, like, really complicated situation and you want to just throw up your hands, that's when you're probably going to say, hey, why don't you call my friend Joel Nagel because, you know, he's probably heard this situation before and he might have some strategies and ideas for you. That It's really more of those challenging type situations. Um, not always. Sometimes it's people have a lot of money and they just prefer to have, a, you know, a lawyer handle their their affairs for them, particularly with regard to creating these types of legal structures. But, you know, in the, even in those cases, if what they really need is a simple boilerplate, you know, trust for 2500 bucks from a trustee in, in uh, you know, Cook Island, we'll, we'll, after we hear what they have to say for a few minutes, we don't have any trouble, you know, referring them to that kind of service provider either if that's what they need and not not the kind of services that we provide. That definitely answers my question. And I, and I think it is important for the listeners to know and understand kind of who you reach out to for certain things, the right tool for the right job, I suppose. Anyways, Joel, it, it was amazing conversation. I have a full page of notes. I've learned so much from you today, and I can't wait to uh, to dig into some of these things that you mentioned. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? Well, you know, they can always look us up on the on the internet, Nagel Law. Um, but you know, probably your your readers should just uh, come back through you. I mean, you you have a I think you're going to set up a landing page uh, for asset protection, and uh, they can come back to you. And you know, if it's if it's something where you feel it's a good fit for us, uh, please send them along. We'd we'd be happy to talk to anybody and help them, you know, with their situation. We. We have so many things that we didn't talk about. You know, you've got things like inbound planning for folks that want to move to the U.S. You know, we can help groups like that to to protect and preserve their assets so that, you know, they're not going to all be subject to, um, you know, U.S. taxation, particularly estate taxation. That's a, that's an interesting thing. And we didn't really talk about expatriation, citizenship, residency. You know, there are a million things that sort of dovetail to the core uh, element of asset protection and it just pretend, you know, for most people, there's one thing that's sort of driving them. Uh, but then once they start looking at that one thing, 10 other things, you know, come around in the periphery. And, uh, we try to think that we take a very holistic approach. Um, we'll try to help people understand their, their needs and challenges and problems and then come up with a, a solution. Um, one of the products we have, we call the personal asset protection plan where as a first step, we, we just sit down, really understand what all the problems and challenges are, and then we try to map out a spectrum of solutions that we think would make sense and explain those to them in a sort of written form so that they can understand what their options are. And, you know, even though it adds a, an extra step at the beginning, um, in Latin America they have a saying, you know, measure twice, cut once. And uh, that's what we like to do. We want to make sure that we don't get halfway down the road with the client in one area, and then they say, oh, well, why don't you tell me about this? Or why don't we talk about that? Um, so we try to lay out all the options, really educate the client, and then, you know, frequently they'll know 
will be like, you know what? I really don't. <laughs> this is great. Uh, this is a great overview, but I just need something simple. I'm going to call this registered agent firm in Belize. Or, yeah, I can see I really need to have you do these three or four things for us. And uh, um, so that that's how we really like working with clients or work through that analysis step first. And then uh, for those that need our services, you know, we're, we're there to help them all the way through to the end. I love it. Well, I know you and I, Joel, we could spend all day talking. You know, we've been out for dinner. We've talked on the phone a dozen times. Um, I would love to have you back on the show to talk about some of the things that you just mentioned there. But I think today we've given a really uh, thorough understanding for my listeners about asset protection. And I hope that um, if anybody needs to get a hold of you, that they do it today and not uh, when storms are on the horizon, as you said. So for my listeners, if you would like to uh, get a hold of Joel, feel free to email me. You can either visit expatmoneyshow.com, my website, or contact me directly at support at michaelthorpe.com and I'll make sure that I make a nice introduction to Joel. Joel, thank you once again for being a guest on the show. I really appreciate your time and I'll talk to you soon, okay? Mikhail, thank you so much. This was great. I, I, I enjoyed it and uh, be happy to help any of your listeners. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Joel. We'll talk soon. Bye. Wow, we could not have packed more intel into one episode if we tried. The original recording was more than two hours long, but I cut it back to 90 minutes so I didn't totally overwhelm anyone. Well, since the recording, I have been working on a new infograph to highlight these strategies and more. The infographic is basically a visual outline with short blurbs explaining offshore asset protection. And if you are already a subscriber of EMS Pulse, my daily email newsletter, then you have received this free gift weeks ago before anyone else. If you have not got your copy yet, then I want you to go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection right now to download it. I don't know how long I will be offering this for free, and I would hate to see you miss out on this. So go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash protection. Okay, we'll see you next week. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels.